Hello and welcome to Act Natural. I am your host, Brian Middleton. I'm Janelle Sunshine. I'm Sam. <laughs> and I'm Eric. And today we're talking about um, how mindfulness, uh, acceptance and commitment therapy slash training style approaches benefit um, business structures, employees, and the quality of therapeutic environments. Mm-hmm. And uh, Sam and Eric, could you guys tell us a little bit about yourselves? And please feel free to mention your podcast. Sure. So I'm Sam. I'm the owner of Adventures with Autism in Salem, Oregon. Um, we are a clinic-based ABA company that's been open almost three years. Um, I'm a BCBA. And we're licensed out here, too. I'm also a certified clinical trauma specialist. And I'm on the licensing board for the state of Oregon. Um, so, yeah, I'm also a, a nonprofit photography company for kids with special needs. And Eric and I um, co-host Hops and Hooves, which is a podcast that's um, like ABA and Humanity. And I teach at Capella also. Um, is that all I do, Eric? Um. Yeah. <laughs> Sam does cool. all the things. All the things. Uh, yeah. Sam is an extreme multitasker. Yes. Yeah, that, that was, I was trying to think of the term that Brian called it extreme multitasker. Insane. Um, Sam is kind of like the uh, like the, the gravitational force. Like where she starts going, like people kind of get sucked in the wink. And... Um, as Beth says, I said, Beth, what do I do when I'm really excited about a topic? She says, you make all of us get really excited and do all the things. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's true. So that's me. Um, Anyways, and Eric here is my bestest BCBA friend ever. I'm, I'm, I'll let you just introduce me, I guess. No, I was just going to say you're my bestest BCBA friend. <laughs> you're like my, uh, my uh, BCBA sister. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I'm Eric. I'm also BCBA. Um, I am the Director of Training and Development. Yes. I can't remember the title. <laughs> uh, Adventures with Autism in uh, Kaiser and Salem. Um, I've been here. God, I've been here almost a year. Whoop, whoop. Next week. Oh, no. Oh, that yeah. is coming up. I think it would actually be really cool to talk about how this relationship between the two of you happened so organically, and then as Eric, you were alluding to Sam's magnetic pull into her orbit. <laughs> Of how that even came about, because the three of us actually met around the same time, and then right, right, Sam kind of became like the leader, I guess, of our our little ABA group that we formed. They became a little mini, a little Sam, mini cult. Yeah, Sam's yeah. a little wassy, is what they're trying to say, <laughs> and yeah, that happens. Yeah, a lot. Um, it's interesting in that um, you know where I was formerly in Texas for 20 years um, and had been a BCBA for, I guess at that point, four or five years. Um, never really had what I, what I would call a, my own professional learning network, a group of people that I could just connect with and talk about ABA. Um, and I, I had made a decision a couple years ago uh, when ABAI was at San Diego. I'm like, I'm gonna go. I'm just gonna go commit myself to just being around other BCBAs and like enjoy the experience. My first dip in there was like, eh, I'm not that comfortable with it. Then, uh, and then Chicago came up last year and I thought, okay, I'm really going to make a more concerted effort to connect with other people. Um, I had gotten, I kind of met you all really through the confessions group, mm -hmm. the Facebook group. 
and we had a lot of different just kind of joking around conversations and there were a lot of meetups planned at ABAI. And I was like, I'm going to do it. I just go ahead and connect. And that's where like the three of us kind of connected through. Yeah, generally, I can't remember how you and I hooked up, but I was like, I had said to Aaron and Kristen, I was like, I'm going to do these things and I'll be here and you have to come help me. Um, And then I ended up, I think because you can see me from really far away, because I usually have bright colored were like that one i know i can find that person so she's gonna be the like the person i go to which is weird because i'm like real socially anxious like i don't i was like Mm -hmm. oh hi um so i know eric you found me in the bar right isn't that where we're at the bar and then generally how did we i remember um you and Lena and I had started a separate chat. And actually, initially, before you got your hotel room, that was way out in the sticks. Mm-hmm. We had all talked about potentially rooming together, meeting up. Um, and then you ended up getting your hotel that was way far away. And <laughs> then when I arrived, you were already with Aaron and Kristen in their room. And then you texted and said, hey, I'm here. Come up. And then we just automatically we clicked and I remember Aaron and Kristen saying I thought that you two had been friends for forever and we were like no we literally just met yeah, nope. in person <laughs> I remember now that yeah. makes sense so I'm not really sure like how like Sam you and I were really, like there was a meetup and somehow there was we, a meetup and then everyone we was introduced going, ourselves to each other and so everyone was going up to that party yeah because we were all the bar everyone was going up to that party and you and I looked at each other and I was like I mean we can go but I don't like people so we go upstairs <laughs> and it's like the I don't know it was like Corey, it was DBA's party. Yes. And I, we're up there and like, uh, Amanda Kelly almost Mm -hmm. like basically licked my face. And, uh, Corey was like sweating in his suit and there was like people and they were like too close. And I looked at Eric, I was like, can we go? And he was like, "Uh huh." And then we yeah. ran away. And I was like, "Okay, we'll be downstairs." Yeah, and then we went downstairs, and we all just start kind of struck up a conversation about who we are, what we do, what we're into, and things just kind of clicked. Yep. And then um, we rescued Jenny a couple times. Yeah. Yeah, and we uh, all actually ended up um, at a tattoo parlor together, getting ABA tattoos. Yeah, and then we did that, <laughs> um, and then like that kind of like, but for Sam and I, that kind of started a lot of conversations about like our beliefs about like being in a company, uh, doing ABA, how we work with staff and something about like the things that we were saying to each other just seemed to click. Mm-hmm. And then you came in and like, Hey, we need to come work for me. And I was like, well, whatever. Yeah. Screw you lady. <laughs> and then I, t- I text my mom. Like, hey, I just got a, I, I just got a joke job offer. And she was like, Oh, where? <laughs> she, I was like, Oregon. And she was like, oh, my God, I want to move to Oregon. She's like, oh, my God, I want to do it. And I'm like, eh, whatever. Uh, so then like, then we talked about it there. Did we talk a little bit about it? I think we joked about it there. We kind of joked about it there. Um, but we, we kind of continued our conversations. And then after like a little while, I was like, hey, let's me talk about this. And I was like, oh, shit, I have to like actually offer you a job. I don't know how to do that. <laughs> and, <laughs> it's all uh, real now. Yeah. 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 Uh, it is, I mean, that was, gosh, a little over a year ago, and now here I am. Doing I a pod, doing so a podcast with y'all. Yeah, um, you went out there, I remember, to to just kind of observe and see what was going on. And then I remember you mm-hmm. posting, like, this is it. This is perfect. This is where I want yeah. to work. This is where I yeah. want to live. Yeah. And not only Eric, Lena actually ended up coming, too. So when we're mm-hmm. talking about this, this 
we can do our quote unquote this magnetic pool, but I think it's truly a testament to what Sam has created with Adventures with Autism and the type of environment where people, not only do they want to work there, they want to move across the country to work there. And that's a really beautiful thing. So we're so excited to, to have Sam and Eric uh, here today to tell us a little bit more about how they are supporting their staff. Um, this conversation also happened organically um, with all of the, the tensions happening in, in the, the country right now. I mean, gosh, we know what we've been through in 2020. And then on top of it, the election, I made a post in Mindful Behavior, which Brian also helps me admin. And we've created this, this beautiful partnership with Act Natural. Um, but wanting to know, what are you all doing for self-care? And Eric, a lot of people posted about this is what I'm doing. I'm staying away from coffee. I'm, I'm doing extra yoga. <laughs> and Eric came in and said, I'm really focusing on how I can support my staff. How I how can I be there for those who are working for me? And, and I'm putting my emphasis on more servitude on this. And, and that really stood out to me on such a selfless approach to this. And, and that sort of triggered this conversation of, oh my gosh, this is a great idea for for the podcast. Brian said, yeah, let's do it. I'm on board. Sam was automatically on board. And uh, Sam was like, sure, let's do it. And I didn't actually know what we were doing. I, just, I was like, what am I doing? All right. Then, yeah, yeah, here we are. I'm like, oh, I popped off on something. And next thing you know, I'm like, here we are. <laughs> Which is strange because it's usually me who pops off on something. And then Eric goes, now, why do I have a whole nother job? And I'm like, sorry. Anyway. Uh, um, so yeah, you want me to go ahead and talk about it, or yeah, please jump do. in. Yeah. yeah. Um, so when back, I was a special ed teacher way back in the day, um, and I loved my time working as special ed. I worked at the EBD classrooms, so uh, students have emotional behavior disorders, um, and I was was discovered, I guess. Um, in there uh, as a person who was knowledgeable and patient and that could work with children and could explain concepts to other teachers very well. And so I was kind of like, in a way, kind of pulled out of the classroom into uh, like kind of mid-management mid type level uh, support roles as a behavior interventionist, as a program specialist. Um, and it was something that I, I wanted to do, but I, wasn't entirely comfortable in being in that position and, and leading teachers and paraprofessionals into like how to do this kind of thing, but I was good at it. Um, and then I, I was introduced to our special education director at the time um, who had somehow heard about me. Um, and we had, to, I had a conversation about servant leadership. Um, and I don't know how much you all know about that term, servant leadership. It's been around for a while. I knew nothing um, of it until Eric existed I, in my life. And I was like, there's a name? What? <laughs> I've never heard of that that term. Can you define that for us and the, our um, listeners a little bit? So servant leadership is a, is a philosophy of leadership in which the, the purpose of leader and the understanding of why you are a leader is to serve, basically, the people who you work with, the I'm going to use the term under you for lack of a better term, but, you, but when you look, think of it from like a hierarchical structure, which companies typically look at, um, a leader has people who work underneath them, right? And those people do their work and then they report back to a supervisor. Servant leadership looks more, you're not here for me. 
I, as leader, am here for you. I'm here to provide you the resources, the ways, the means, the training, the materials, whatever it is that you need to do your job better and to grow you so that in turn down the road, you will also want to be a leader and serve those that you work with. Um, and so that uh, director um, that I worked with did a lot of training about that. And it was really an eye-opening thing for me. Like I had always seen where you'd go to trainings or even just in the, the daily practice of working in schools and working in a uh, big school organization that a lot of leadership roles by design were kind of this, um, the person who sits on a perch and um, don't get me wrong. I would love to sit on a perch, <laughs> please. And thank you. And my office is kind of like a perch. So are you but talking anyway, bird perch or are you talking fish? <laughs> Uh, well, I would really like actually like a throne that's kind of like held up by, I don't know, humans. <laughs> you want people to carry you around? Yeah, uh, yeah. I just want to be transported. Um, you want a palanquin, I get you. Okay. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, so you see like a lot of these leadership um, or people that are in leadership roles that the way they act is more about you're, I'm not here for you. It's you report back to me and you do all these things so that I can go do things. And that's not yeah. really in the spirit of servant leadership. So when you think about servant leadership, there's like really like kind of three core kind of tenets. One is that um, you should have a kind of a natural desire to want to do this, mm-hmm. um, being in a leadership role. Um, uh, it's hard to be a leader if you're kind of dragged into it. Like in my position, I was kind of in a sense dragged into it, but it, I was kind of dragged into it willingly, if you will. <laughs> um, and then there's also that you have make, you're making an active choice in your, in your position to, um, to want to inspire and help other people. Um, the third piece is that the whole purpose of what you do is to inspire others and want to see them grow. And that the validation and the reinforcement that you get in your position and the work that you do is that people do in fact grow and get better. That in turn helps them do their job better and then leads to the performance of the clients that we're working with. And that's the ultimate goal is that clients get the utmost care that they can ever get. Right. And when people are inspired to do that because they have the resources, they have the training and they have the support, then they're going to do the job. They're going to meet that expectation of getting quality care. So I think it sort of like organically grew into where it is, if that makes sense. So mm-hmm. I did not know servant leadership existed, but what I knew was that people will do things well if they feel supported and loved and valued and they have the resources they need. Um, And sort of because I came from a lot of companies that treated their employees awfully badly, I opened this place with the intention that I want consistent staff that are very, very good at their job, dedicated to these little baby humans and are those baby humans and families get these outcomes that are what they want, yes. not what I want, not what the insurance company wants, but what the family and the baby human want in their life. Um, so when I met Eric and he was like, oh, yes, servant leadership. I was like, what's a what? Who's a who? Because <laughs> you're, um, you're already doing it. Yes. Um, and, and so I was just kind of able to frame it into a, an actual thing. Right. Which actually helps yeah. me because as you all know, I have ADHD. So like without a like a framework, my brain just ends up in the mush. No, mine's completely um, diagnosed ADHD. Yeah, his is, yes. <laughs> um, but I was able to sort of say, okay, we now know that our company does this, this is what it officially is. Okay, how do we make sure we maintain this level and this 
um, sort of environment and culture that we have so that these quality services can continue. Um, so that this this comes to mind because I'm into leadership. I, I have my administrative endorsement for education. It, it's a big deal for me because that's a big part of behavior and, and how the, the leader shapes the environment. And one of my favorite quotes, and I had to look it up so that way I didn't screw it up, is by Richard Branson, the uh, mm-hmm. CEO of Virgin Mobile or Virgin. Um, Train people well enough so they can leave. Treat them well enough so they don't want to. Yep. Right. I um. Correct. I always say that, especially for like for our RBTs and our BCBA candidates, I want it to be so that if you leave me, I am excited that you're going to go out and spread what you know, and not terrified that you're going to go to another company and destroy things. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's yeah, that's always been my goal: is that I want people who I am proud of and who the field should be proud of. Um, and that's kind of where, you know, it's been, and it's funny you brought up Richard Branson, because when I first started this company, I didn't have a whole lot, like Eric, I didn't have role models or like, I didn't know what this company should look like. I couldn't find anything that was doing what I sort of felt was the right thing to do. And I pulled a lot from like Zappos, who does a whole lot for staff culture and Virgin with, um, and a couple other companies and Southwest. sort of Southwest yeah. and like amalgamated it into what yeah. I wanted and like went from there, um, which I think, and Eric and I do think very much the same way. We are behavior analysts as scientists. We don't do autism treatment, right? We do, but that's not where it is. So we look at everything from this behavior analytic lens that says, okay, what is this? What are these contingencies? How are they being manipulated? How do we make them more reinforcing? How do we make them transparent and operationalize them and technological? And that's just, and then this sort of all flowed into. Yeah, we're trying as a company to operationalize and quantify things that we don't typically try to operationalize and quantify. Right now, we're trying to (laughs) operationalize empathy behaviors. Right, right. (laughs) Brene Brown is like... Before we started recording of of having a little bit of that conversation that historically in the field of ABA, it's just widely known and sadly almost accepted that we are revolving doors for our behavior technicians. And and there's not a whole lot of conversation about what can we do to make this better to really invest in our technicians who, let's face it, they're the ones on the day-to-day, on the front line, putting in all of this work. Mm-hmm. It, at least uh, in your all's, maybe your experience has been different. Eric, it sounded like you had a lot of training in, on that leadership part. But I, I feel like maybe with some of the companies I worked for, it was just almost a self-defeating, this is what's going to happen anyway. So maybe let's not put as much into it. And and you're right, we're behavior analysts. We don't just deal with autism. Let's focus on the solutions on, on how we can do this across the board, really invest in our tech. So I love, I love this of, of what you all are doing here. And yeah, go tell us a I little think, bit more about what that looks like for you all. So, I mean, I think part of the problem, no one teaches behavior analysts how to be leaders, which is like a very important skill as a behavior analyst because you're leading entire treatment teams and teams of RBTs and all of the things. But yet we just sort of assume that we'll be like, hey, it's fine. You can just be a jerk and it'll work. Um, so I think there's a key piece to like a, the BCBA curriculum that is missing that contributes to a lot of these holes. And then I think you're right. Companies 
because of insurance funding, want money. And they look at autism treatment as money. And it says, why would I invest a ton of money in an RBT when average turnover for the industry is 48%, which is what it was at last count. Yeah, they, uh, they accept that that rate just, mm-hmm. just, it's just a given. And I didn't <laughs> and calculate know. that as part, of, as part of the formula. Oh, we just accept it as a, yeah. a, 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 an acceptable loss, for but don't address the problem. For yeah. that 48%, that doesn't even encompass our technicians who are not full registered behavior technicians, right? No, it doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't. Um, Shannon and I are actually working on um, trying to get some accurate numbers of what turnover looks like within companies so that we have like a place to start. So that 48%, and that I think is two-year-old data at this point, um, Mm -hmm. that I believe was just RBTs in companies, and it was companies that were reporting. So like your bigger companies, companies are not reporting what they're and and from being in there that turnover is like 80 percent like that's insane so I didn't know what we were aiming for when I opened this place I did not know what I should look for I was like I'm gonna do the things and at the end of the year I'm gonna look at turnover and we'll see where we got to um our first year in business was it first first year our first year of business our turnover was 12 percent that's it. 12%. Um, which is, yeah, it's huge. Right. Um, this year is obviously going to be different because of COVID. So I don't even know how to calculate this year because we have people who like went out on quarantine and then were like, no, I can't come back, you know, all, all the things. Um, but we are every quarter when we do performance scorecards, we aim for under, I think around 15 to 20% per center is what we consider, fine it's not perfect but i'm okay with it uh and we we make sure that we the people we have there are not just there to keep our turnover rates low um and i think to address kind of how we got there it goes all the way back to our hiring procedures so we have very intense hiring procedures Mm -hmm. they do phone interview in-person interview working interview and then we hire them um within their first not necessarily because they well, can get all the way through that process. And then and we, we still don't hire don't them. Because <laughs> there's, there's times that people come in and the reason that was done was because we want people to see mm-hmm. and it really experience what a day looks like. Mm-hmm. So you can talk about what a day looks like in, over the phone. You can talk about what it looks yeah. like through a face-to-face conversation. But mm-hmm. the questions really come up when you are in the trenches, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then there's some people that come in and after, you know, a half day of a working interview, they're like, yeah, this, isn't, this isn't for me. Or yeah. we even say, no, thank you. yeah, thanks, mm-hmm. but no thanks. Yeah. And it's, I mean, my Apple watch has that sound thing on it. And at least five times a day, it's like, you should go to a quieter environment. And I'm like, oh, okay, <laughs> sure. Right. Cause we have clinic services. All of our clients are intensive services. They're there 32 hours a week. And we're set up very much like a school. So we have transitions, we have lunchtime, we have special interest, we have uh, gym class, all the things. So it's a high energy, very intensive job with very high standards to meet. So that just that hiring process lets us know if you can fit in with our culture here, if you can really give the kids what you need all of those pieces. So I think that helps because we don't just hire Joe Smo off the street who applied through Indeed. And we're like, do you want a job? Right. 
Um, which is what lots of these bigger companies do. You apply, they call you, they put you through this 40 hour training and they're like, off you go. And it's like, no. Um, so can you walk us through that a little bit more? I'm sure our listeners, cause this is a topic that so many BCBAs were, that we're interested in and that company owners that, that we're really interested in and how do we invest? So on the front end, uh, I'm hearing a big piece of this. It's not, let's just do this 40 hour training. You sound great over an interview. So it sounds like a big component of this. You're actually going on site, totally immersing yourself into what this looks like in the center before right. even starting day one. Yep. And then you have to do the 40 hour online training before you even start. We don't pay you for it. Sorry, kids. Uh-huh. You want to be here? Do your thing. Okay. Um, and then your first week, you do 40 hours of shadowing, and it's a structured shadow process. So they go from day one is like literally survive. <laughs> <laughs> and then check in and tell us how you feel. And we build them all the way up through running their own session with one of our lead techs there for support. And then we customize the next few weeks based on what client they might be with or how their skills are. Um, we're lucky because we have built in site coordinators who handle all of the scheduling, drop off, pick up, all of that. We have lead techs that are trained on each team and they are basically like BCBAs. They help with you know clinical questions in the moment they can cover things so the rest of the training is sort of customized to like hey this is this is what you need to be with this you know this group of kids or whatever that kind of looks like um and then we do monthly fidelity assessments for every rbt on site that the bcbas do and we graph the results and we make goals from it so we have a very very solid feel of how our techs are performing in areas of either organizational deficits or individual deficits. And then we have a flow that flows into our director of training. It's like we've identified that you are awful at error correction procedures, but we mm-hmm. love you because you're here for the right reasons. So here we're going to, we've identified this as a skill deficit. We know how to teach to skill deficits is what we do. So we're going to teach you and then we're going to get you to mastery criteria and then we're going to generalize it. And then we're going to keep tracking because, again, that's what we do. So I'm interested with some of these metrics that you're talking about when when you're doing your fidelity assessments. Do you have anything in place for your for your RBTs that they almost like a token economy that if they hit this, this and this, they're able to trade in for? Of course we do. We I have to learn more about that. And we're, and we're continuing to work on that. Yes. Too, so. so we have a couple. So we have an, um, an in-house level system that is for our RBTs and for our lead RBTs that lets them progress through different levels of training and competencies so that they can act access different reinforcing benefits. Um, And it goes kind of all the way up to, you can have individual meetings with me. Like if you have specific career goals and you're like, you want to pick my brain, you can just schedule them with me, show up to where I am. You get paid. It's at work time, um, you know, and you get extra like PTO or something all the way up through Mm -hmm. there. And our staff also have a dollar system thing that they do. So it's peer to peer. They have, uh, I think we call them BF bucks. Do we? That's for management. Oh, I don't know. They're dollars. And they give, them, dollars. Yeah. they give them to each other based on specific criteria of um, someone else's actions meeting our internal company values. And then they can trade their dollars in for like company swag, gift cards, um, rock climbing stuff, 
all of that good jazz. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of what it looks like as far as performance management on the light light end, I think. Yeah, um, I would say the the peer-to-peer system that we that they follow right now it's somewhat like behavior based in that they can mm-hmm. choose specific behaviors. But a lot of times they're tying it to like a company value. So we have like four company values that we say, these are the things that we, we do. And these are, this is how we practice. We even have like a staff matrix of this is how we operationalize what respect looks like, what inclusion looks like, what safety looks like, what empathy looks like. And so they can reward dollars to a peer saying, Hey, I noticed that you were respectful by, um, helping out a coworker that was struggling with a kid the other day, here's a dollar. Um, and they write their name on the dollar. And so there's a little, uh, an acknowledgement uh, method in there. Um, they also have a compliment uh, jar that uh, it's, they have, they put a compliment for a staff member. And at the end of the week in our team meeting, our, uh, for our full staff meeting, we go around the room and we just call out the, the compliments for whatever actions that were going on that week. Um, and then the management team, has our own system where we uh, we call them BF bucks, and so a BF buck is uh, where we, as a management uh, or supervisor, see someone that's engaging in a very specific behaviors, and we want to recognize that, and so we'll give them a BF buck, which is a little bit weighted. I think it's like five, five dollars. No five, eight, it's like the equivalent of five dollars. Um, and so, like that's a kind of an additional system that we we tied into all of that. Um, and the, we did it that way because the staff buys into the system. They yes. own it. They run it. Um, we are just kind of carried along with it. And they, they do a really good job of taking the time to recognize each other. And they take all those dollars, by the way. And we have like our own little store. Mm-hmm. Um, they say, okay, if I have 100 AWA dollars, I can cash that in for uh, shirts that we design mm-hmm. Movie tickets, yeah, they can also they can can donate it to charity Uh because we have one of those too, so they can donate it back Mm -hmm. so that we can do things with it. So, our listeners are not privy right now, but where we're seeing this beautiful thing on Sam's screen that that she has shared with us of, of key metrics they're looking at that fall within the values. And I love what you all just laid out. You know, I've, I've been in the field for a long time now, but forked across various settings, environments, companies, and, and I've not ever heard of anything like this, of the peer-to-peer. And it's so much of the focus is always seems to be on that utilization or client mastered X number of targets. Mm-hmm. So to have a system put in place on what are our other values, which falls in line with ACT, of, mm-hmm. of how can we reward you for this other behavior that's really important and and going to help you stay engaged and also ultimately be for the client and their success. So this is so cool. I'm so excited about what you all are talking about. And I would love to see other other BCBAs and companies try to emulate a model like that. Right. And I think, so when we started, I said, you know, we need so what what do you need on a Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right, 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 to be a stable, successful staff member? Here's what you don't need. You don't need part-time with hours that are canceled if your family's out sick or if they're tired or if they're on vacation, because that's not stability in money or schedule or any of that. So I said, okay, we need everyone to be full-time. Everyone who works for us is a full-time employee. 
if you are full-time, okay, what else do you need? If I'm thinking you're going to be here for two, three, four, five, eight, ten 10 years, you need health insurance for you and your family, right? You need paid holidays because this is what, if you worked for, I don't know, Google, you get paid holidays. Uh, we need training because ongoing training is key to any field, especially one like ours. Uh, we need, what else do we, stability, you know, and all that kind of thing. And I, so from the beginning, um, cause my dad and I opened the company together, I said, here's the insurance reimbursement numbers, make this work. And we did, we said, okay, how do we, how do we get the services, quality services that we need with the staff we need within this, here's where we get our funding model from. Um, so yeah, we offer 120 hours of PTO plus 10 paid holidays, uh, health insurance, dental insurance. Um, we do profit sharing with all of our employees. We never have a profit because we give it all away. But in theory, if we were ever rich, we'd have some money to give away. Uh, we have like the internal recognition system. We have level systems so that there's room for uh, movement up in the company. We uh, we have admin support because we have our site coordinators that do all of that piece. What else do we do? I, I think, think there's we, more. We we are, I think one of the biggest things that we do are we very we're very proactive in engaging our staff. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that the staff report that they appreciate is that our supervisors are very good at being on the front end of things and not being reactionary BCPAs. It's funny you brought up Hanley because I was just at, uh, I did the EFL conference and Dr. Hanley gave a a presentation and he said, be a floor BCBA, not a desk BCBA. And that's what I shove. I'm like, if you're at your desk, you're not doing your job. I don't care how much you analyze a graph. The people that need you are physically right there. Go there. 1,000%. 1,000%. Yes, yeah, that, that yeah. is a huge takeaway as well. So, and always my approach If I want to get in the chair. I want to model for you. I don't want to get up and tell you how to do your job. I want to sit in the chair and show you how to do your job. Yeah. Um, super, oh, you got something to say there, Brian? Yeah, I, I, I have a quick question because I'm hearing all the great stuff, but but here's the, here's the hard question for you because mm-hmm. I've got to throw that out there. Yeah. What do you do when someone keeps screwing up and oh, not following through with the data and, the and all the stuff you yeah. do? What's that so, process? Hit them with it, Sam. Hit them with it. Yeah, okay. So we've I'm waiting for it. Now, <laughs> one of the things that was hardest for me, I think, when I opened a company is that I really feel, I still feel like I want everyone to be successful. So I have a really hard time grasping that I cannot help everyone get to where they need to be. Um, and that's still my struggle. So I built in internally um, performance management systems that uh, allow us to identify uh, performance versus skill deficit. So we um, we take an OBM view and we say, okay, let's analyze performance deficit or skill deficit. If we determine that it's a skill deficit, that's my fault. I, as the company leader, have not provided you with the things you need to do your job let's fix it. So then we create a whole kind of BST plan and we say, okay, we failed. We're going to make this up to you. Let's do this thing. And we program that all the way out. 
if we find that it's a performance deficit, right, it's a um, potentially work is not reinforcing enough, or, you know, maybe it's just too high energy, we kind of do the same thing, but we'll sit down and say, here's the issue that we've noticed, here's it operationalized, here's the baseline data for how often it's happening, here's the effect that that has on our clients and our culture and our staff, you know, and then here's what we're suggesting we do, because we need you to meet this standard. Because if you are not meeting this standard, we are not providing quality services. So it's basically a put up or shut up moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think you, the hardest part for me is that I have to be ready to let people go, which is hard. Um, I've, I think three BCBAs have parted ways with me, us. Um, and all of those were a very hard place to get to because we invest a lot. And I think that everyone should be able to meet these standards for these baby humans. Um, so I think you have to also say, I gave you every chance. I feel like you were provided with every opportunity. I am comfortable saying, nope, sorry, you cannot meet these standards. And I cannot accept anything less for the baby humans that are here. Um, and I was trying to pull up, we have a whole internal performance management for our BCBAs to follow so that they can't just say, so-and-so's not doing their job and I want them to get better because yeah. that's not how it works. Well, and I got good news for you. Hmm. Um, I don't know if you've heard of core design principles or not. Uh, Ellen uh-uh. Ostrom is the researcher behind this. And I first heard about this through a act for ABA conference where Stephen Hayes was presenting and Dr. David Sloan Wilson was presenting, but you hit just based off your description. And I'm going to ask other questions about this because I I suspect you're hitting all eight, but so far you have described perfectly four of the eight. Ooh, I like when I'm good at things I didn't even know I was doing. 50%. You're you're 50%. And here's the thing about core design principles. So Dr. Wilson has been doing a lot of research on this as well. Um, And if you read uh, Dr. Wilson and Dr. Hayes' book, um, ProSocial, they go into more details about this. But these are clear, discrete behaviors that are replicable that if, if they are present, it doesn't matter how the organization is structured. It doesn't matter what type of organization is. They've seen this in global corporations, small businesses, government organizations, uh, schools, uh, nonprofit organizations. If you have these eight characteristics, the people that work in that structure will thrive. And the people who learn in those structures thrive. And it is, it is amazing to see the research that's coming out from this. So uh, kudos, you're, you're doing something that you didn't even realize you were doing. And now I just found my next Google hole that I'm going to fall into and be like, hey, thanks, Brian. Now I can't pull myself out of this one. You know, the thing that speaks to is that, that good practices are good practices. Mm-hmm. Yep. And there's things that are just universal. If you do these things, if you're a good human being and you treat people right, People are going to treat you right. People mm-hmm. are going to want to stay. And that's a lot of what we're trying to accomplish is let's just treat people right. Give them the things that they need yeah, um, so that they feel like they're in a, a comfortable place. I, I had just two separate reports just from last week of two different meetings where it was verbally stated out loud, 
this is probably the best place that I've ever worked, that I'm happy to be here. I don't ever want to go anywhere else. Which is what we're going for. Um, and I'm like, that speaks to the culture that we're trying mm-hmm. to to build and, and, right. and sustain. And I think in that, because the, the mission is the, the baby humans, right? Mm-hmm. So I want you to want to find this the best place you've ever worked, not for my ego, Right. But because that means that those little tiny cute baby humans that need us are getting high quality services and care and will continue to do so. So it's and it's all sort of back to that like initial core value that I think if you ask anyone in our company what that is, it's that like quality clinical service piece so that our baby humans have the most happiness that they want can have in their lives. Um, and we're all always aiming towards that goal. And we fight in the middle. Don't get me wrong. I'll be like, no, that's no, you can't do that. Stop it. And the person, and we have it set up so that people can say to me, like, stop, that's a bad business decision. And I'm like, wait, why? You just and described number five. Well, see, there you go. Yeah, we have um, we have open <laughs> feedback loops. So we have, um, they have a direct line to me at all. All employees have a direct line to me at all times. All employees Same. have a direct line to Eric at all times. Um, our BCBAs are expected to engage in the feedback loop so much so that they should, we have quantitative methods for taking data on knowing how strong your rapport is so that you know if you're able to get the feedback you need to do your job well. Um so that whole feedback loop, I think, is one of the reasons that we are successful because I want to hear you. And I tell this story all the time and I'll cut out the swear words, but um, I had an employee once who he was not doing the right, like he, he, we were in clinic, but he was like half asleep and not paying attention. So I walked past and I tipped to the back of his chair with my foot and I was like, get up. Right. And apparently when I walked away, he called me a stupid effing B word. One other one other staff members were there. So they come and tell me and I'm like, okay, that sounds fair. So I pull him into a room and I was like, hey, it sounds like you're really upset. Here's what was reported to me. I really want to know how we can get to where you're successful here and what that looks like. And his face turned white. He was like, oh, crap. And I was like, it doesn't matter. You can, you can be mad at me. You can call me whatever you want. It does not matter. What matters is, is there something in this piece of feedback that I need to hear to get to where we're going? And that's always been sort of the basics, right? I don't care if you insult me. Go ahead. Whatever. People have gone worse. And, and you're describing step number six, fast and fair conflict resolution. <laughs> yes, that's also my favorite. My, um, yeah. my, my approach is when I'm, when I'm working with staff is, I'm always trying to get formative feedback in the moment. So when I go out to give you some kind of support, whether like you need technical assistance and de-escalating or just need programming assistance or how to implement this particular uh, goal or objective, I always finish it by asking them, did you get what you needed out of this? Like, can you now do your, do you think you could do your job better? Let's see what it looks like now that we've talked through it and I've explained it. Do you feel like, you have the tools. You have what you need. Mm-hmm. And if they feel like they don't, okay, let's go, go back. back. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or let's schedule another time that we can do this so you can get a little bit more in depth. Uh, I think it's so important to, to have that kind of give and take with staff so that they know that you're, you're an open person, that you're mm-hmm. willing to make suggestions, 
you're willing to change that it's not just a mandate come from the top down mm-hmm. that you're willing to take that feedback from them that's a two-sided conversation yeah. a two-way uh, conversation and i think that brings up a good point generally you asked earlier about like opening in other states i think the fact that i am so hands-on is part of the reason that we are successful because you know as an employee of mine on whatever level that you are going to see me, you know how to yeah. get to me, and you know I'm going to hear you and have an open and honest and transparent conversation about what you're feeling, what you're thinking, and if that's something that could be done, should be done, or if it's not reasonable or rational or whatever that looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that really builds it in because if someone hates Eric, they just come to me and they're like, I hate Eric. And I'm like, oh, okay, let's talk about <laughs> it. Why do you hate Eric? What did he do? Right. Um, and I think, Brian, that's hard. you call me in. We can have a conversation. And then we chat about it. But I think you brought that fast and fair conflict resolution. So this is a byproduct of just like my upbringing. Uh, my parents are very passive aggressive and I do not deal with passive aggressive. You in, in this company, you may not flounce. You may not roll your eyes. You may not go. <sighs> you may not act like a goddamn fool. You have a problem. You say it out loud and we figure it out because that. That is the number one fastest way to kill anything, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's poison. It's poison. So like even so much so, like Eric walked into the office the other day, and we, we talked about it on the podcast, and his energy was a little off, and I had employees there, and I was like, what you doing? And it's annoying because we want to be annoyed, right? Like I want to be like, oh, God, I hate all of you, but I can't. <laughs> I have to shut it off, figure it out, deal with it, right? Be in that moment. But then I need, I owe it to my staff and my clients to be in the moment and present with what's happening and not affecting that in a way that is bad, not good. Yeah. So, yeah. So I, you just described another core design principle. Um, you're, you're, you keep on hitting them. So, so I'm going to, I'm going to ask this big question because uh, I think you're going to hit all of them. If you, if you, I think so. Um, so, so the test, the test, the final test, um, you mentioned that you have multiple centers. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the structure like between the centers? So it's very, um, it is designed in a very specific way. Um, And like I said earlier, we are outcome-based, not um, process-based. So as a company, we have clinical quality outcomes and culture outcomes and um, very, very operationalized things that we're headed for. And I say that each center is basically its own, like, if islands could hold hands and, like, support each other, but not like be responsible for each other. That's what it would be like, right? Each clinic is its own management team that has a goal that they're getting to. And that goal is the company goal. And they are responsible for how they get there. And it's my job as the owner of the company to walk you through that process and give you the supports you need as a team to get to those organizational outcomes. So they are, they're individual but like united in sort of where they're headed. So we do a lot of company like mixing, mixing. We do, you know, like big lunches and dinners and all that. And we switch staff back and forth so that we have that built-in support. But each center knows that it is responsible for its own culture and um, outcomes and all of that so that we don't end up with um, what Shannon calls culture killers, like people who just are like, yeah, I don't care. It's someone else's problem. Sam should fix it. Congratulations. Um, you have hit the last one. On, on I won. 
It's uh, so let me go ahead and first that one is local autonomy. Uh, mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll read off the, the eight principles. And I actually in the message chat sent you a link to the article I'm oh, referring good. to. Okay. Um, so first and foremost, clear, defi- clearly defined boundaries. Mm-hmm. Second, proportional equivalence between benefits and costs. Mm-hmm. Third, collective choice arrangements with your token economy and those sorts of things that that is a part of a collective choice arrangement. And there's other things we could delve into, but you hit it Uh, Four, monitoring Mm -hmm. five graduated sanctions, six Mm -hmm. fast and fair conflict resolution, seven local autonomy and eight appropriate relations with other tiers of rulemaking authority. So governance. That's cool. I've never even heard of it. You have hit all eight just in what you're describing. I love it. And, and the research on this is, is superb. Um, and to give you an idea, uh, do you know the happiest company in the world or one of the happiest companies in the world? Uh-uh. Say it again. Toyota. Oh, the car yeah. manufacturer. They're, really? uh, they're rated as one of the happiest companies in the world. And mm. the research, um, on this has been centered around it and Toyota hits all of those things. We're talking a multi-billion dollar organization that spans across countries, Mm -hmm. across continents. And we're Mm -hmm. seeing these characteristics. So as long as you can keep the scalability on it and Mm -hmm. hitting and you're consistently hitting these things, you're going to keep that culture. Yeah. And I think that bringing up that scalability piece is what's important. Cause mm-hmm. I, like I said, originally it was like, I'm not hiring humans because we are, we're all BCBAs. We can admit that we're the worst to manage. I don't know if you've ever had to manage a squad of people who do what we do, but I want to punch them all in the face quite a lot. And I was like, I'm not doing, I don't want to be stressed out all the time. Um, but then, you know, as people, like I, I found Eric and was like, okay, the ABA world is not this tragically awful filled place of clinicians who just want money, which is how I really felt before we got here. Uh, And I keep uncovering these people who are dedicated to the science and to the field and to the people we serve. And I was like, all right, fine. I will grow as long as this piece remains in there. Um, So asking you going to, do you want to do um, more, or centers or across states? And the answer is, if the services can be this high quality and the people can be this happy, then yes. But I can't do that by myself. That's not a me mission. That's a like science community ABA mission that says, no, we're going to fix this. We're not doing these crappy services anymore. We know how to do better. So let's do better. And I'm glad Jenna Lee asked that question because like, it's it's really important. The the thing that you're saying here that this needs to be replicable because that's a scientific characteristic. Right. 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 We like, we purport to be scientists. We, we purport (laughs) to care about behavior. Well, Mm -hmm. let's put our behavior where our mouth is. Yep. Exactly. 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 (laughs) Yeah. And I just shared. Yeah, We're not doing ABA otherwise. Yeah, right. We're not. And that's yeah. just another another ABA mill. Yes. Yeah. That's that's not what we're about. Well, and one of the bigger companies that I worked for, um, like you mentioned, Brian, was very um, like punishment. I I mean, they were going for reinforcement because they wanted to increase billable behaviors. But the contingencies they put in place were punishing to literally everyone. Right. If you if you meet a standard, if you set a criteria up here and 
50% of your employees say that criteria is too high, I can't get there, and you say too freaking bad, get there, you just lost half of your workforce. Like, well, and, you, and, that's, you can't. And that that's right? that's describing so many different structures because, like, mm-hmm. you know, I've worked for organizations in that are non-behavior analytic that, that have fallen into that trap. And mm-hmm. um, I'll tell you right now that, like, a pet peeve of mine because I came from education too. In fact, Eric, the, the, the circumstance you described is almost identical to mine, except that mm-hmm. I didn't get pulled into middle management. It was more like I pursued behavior analysis because I was trying to help my kids. Um, like education <laughs> it, it is, is fraught with these sorts of challenges. Mm-hmm. It starts with modeling the healthy behaviors and showing that, hey, we can be structured, we can have clear boundaries, and we can still care about people. Right. And that's, I don't, I I guess I have a hard time understanding why people have such a hard time with that, you know, and I say about our clinicians, I have very, very high expectations of our clinicians, like you do not work 39.9 hours a week, like we Every human that works for me at the BCV level is so committed that I quite frequently have to be like, excuse me, go take a day off. Right. But that's the expectation because She's not that's, lying. She I, really yes, no, that's the expectation because you're in a position per your qualifications, your training and your credentialing that you should be that person. And if you're not, you have no business touching little humans, go do something else. Um, and I think, you know, I've definitely lost a clinician or two who just really wanted to come to work, work for eight hours and then go home. And that does not work in our field because you are not getting better as a scientist if you are disengaging your ABA brain the moment you leave and not thinking about it, right? Um, And that kind of brings back to that piece about supporting staff. So with this whole election mess, right? uh, As a business owner, I had to write post-election emergency procedures. As in, if we go into civil unrest, how do I make sure from an organizational perspective that all the things are taken care of? And then how do we as management make sure that in this unrest and this time of just, I mean, complete nightmare, basically, how do we put their needs ahead of ours and make sure that's addressed? Because I'm terrified, like I'm I'm a business owner. I'm a woman. I, you know, I have an eight-year-old daughter. We have staff who work for us that are from communities of color. But also, it doesn't matter if I'm terrified because the people who work for me need my support more than I need to worry about myself. So that's where we're going. And here's every decision you make as a clinician for my company must put our staff and our kids ahead of your own. And if it doesn't, you don't belong here. Um, and I think, I think that's a, a thing that isn't talked about enough, right? I think mm-hmm. I take care of my BCBAs very well, right? Like you all have, I mean, they're very well taken care of. But the counterbalance to that is that they are taking care of the people who work for them just as well. Mm-hmm. And that's the piece that makes it work, I think. And, and, and it goes both ways. If I'm investing the time to take care of my folks, they're going to in turn take care of the company too. Mm-hmm. They're going to do their best. They're going to put company values, you know, at the forefront. Um, and so just, it's, it's a cycle uh, and it's, and it's an ever evolving mm-hmm. cycle. And, um, you know, you, you kind of looked at it a lot, Sam, from like a policy mm-hmm. and procedure standpoint, and I put it in action by 
going out there and engaging folks and I do check-ins and we have staff meetings in the mornings where I, we talk about emotionally, where are you? Mm-hmm. Whether we're talking about COVID, whether they're talking about the election, whether they're talking about personal things that are going on in the staff, like let's just get it out in the open. Let's not um, keep everything internalized and we're that should eat at you. If you've got an issue, let's get it out in the open. Let's talk mm-hmm. it through. Well, and I think that, cause you brought up COVID, which I think, you know, I think COVID really shaped who I am as a leader this year. Mm-hmm. Um, we closed for two weeks and that was it because we do high intensive clinical services. Our kids need service, right? This is like, we know they need service and we are risking their development if we're closed. So we said collectively, um, we're going to close for two weeks. We're going to make sure everyone is doesn't have COVID. And then we are going to um, put in the pieces so that we can convert to telehealth for that period. But then when we come back, we're going to be very transparent about how we move forward and how the decisions are made and what that looks like. And I was very clear in communicating, like, I'm also nervous. I don't know what pandemic looks like. I don't know how to run a business in a pandemic. I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to do the wrong thing. I'm going to say the wrong thing. I'm going to make the wrong decision, listen to the wrong person. I was like, but my commitment is that we are going to do this together and we're going to make the decisions that are best for all of us, not just the company or the bottom line or whatever that is. It was what is best here. Um, And when we came back from that two-week closure, we sort of collectively realized that our clients were not doing well and that that was not a choice for us. We, I mean, we're still working on recouping skills we lost Mm -hmm. during that two-week period. Mm -hmm. Um, It was necessary. We had to, we obviously had to, but that, you know, that kind of shaped, okay, we have to stay open in the midst of a global pandemic. What does that look like from a leadership perspective so that everyone is able to be mentally okay in this moment. Yeah, so I am and, interested yeah, in, in bringing this back a little bit and, and talking about, you know, gearing up for the election and checking in with, with mental health or with thoughts on, on COVID and you want to be there to support your team fully. How do you navigate that to where your staff feel like they can talk openly, honestly, but then potentially have conflicting viewpoints about outcomes that they're wanting from this. Um, so, so how do you encourage the, this dialogue to happen in a healthy way that they're not wanting to rip each other's hair out at the end of the conversation? Um, yeah, it's an interesting question because we I actually talked you know, at, with the staff at both centers about that very topic. And you know what I said to them was like, I, I don't care how you voted. Like that's, I mean, I, I guess in a way I do kind of care how you voted, but in, in my role and in, the, my, in my job and in what we do for kids, how you vote should not have a direct effect on what you do with kids. I use the word should like as a point, it shouldn't. Um, but there's times where it does. There's times where the how an election goes does have an impact eventually, even if indirectly, on how you work with um, your, with your clients. Um, but as a company, we don't say, hey, we're this liberal group or we're this conservative group or we all believe this certain way. Everyone has their own beliefs as to how uh, how they should vote and what's best for them. And we don't really actively talk about politics is not something that we talk about at work. I'll put it that way. Um, because our belief is that it really should have a direct bearing on what you do on a day-to-day basis. 
Um, so when we were kind of talking through as a staff, it was more about the what's going on in the world, not are you for or are you are you against. It's about how is the situation weighing on you. Um, like I kind of did a pulse check. Who's who's stressed out about how things are going right now? And they kind of did a hands up, thumbs down kind of thing. And it was really more about getting people engaged and letting them know if this is something that's really stressful for you and you don't feel comfortable talking about it in an open forum, like a, like a staff meeting, come talk to a supervisor, talk to a friend, uh, uh, connect with an ally group because we also have ally groups that's that are right. through our company. Um, if you're feeling like the, the way the election is going is going to be hurtful for you as part of an ally group, connect with those people that are in that ally group to kind of get a better sense of like how to talk through it. Uh, because I'm not, I, I can't, I, as a supervisor, I can kind of be there, mm -hmm. but I can't speak to the experiences of someone who's part of a particular subgroup. Right. I do think uh, an important part of that is that we are very um, transparent about I, I think not politically, but human wise, how we approach things and what we consider to be important. So, right, I mean, I think right. a lot of our staff are very, I want to say like-minded, but that's not quite correct. I think just inherently who we are as a company attracts people who are tend to lean to, more towards the democratic liberal side. So I think that makes it easier because um, we don't have a whole lot of, uh, conflict mm -hmm. in people's views um so i mean i think that helps with that piece of it but we are also very specific about having conversations that are difficult right we mm -hmm. push them to have conversations in a way that you probably don't want to talk about this because you, your learning history with it has been not great but guess what you have to learn how to have conversations about things that are difficult and we're going to help you do that yeah, um, even if that and means like I, some of our, che like our, our staff check-ins in the morning, it could be a question like, what is your biggest fear? Yes. Yeah, they get deep. <laughs> um, and sometimes it does get deep. And, and, and to feel okay talking to your your coworkers and your peers about and your bosses. Things, that can be somewhat difficult at times. Um, and so because the purpose of that is, hey, if we can't have these simple conversations, mm -hmm. we won't be able to have the difficult ones later. Yeah. And I so. think, I mean, I, if you know me and Jenna Lee can speak to this, I am very outspoken about basic human rights. I'm free loud about misogynist i make fun of men a lot um i really hate racists like i am the i am that person who is just very loud about um like people having basic human rights and how you're you can have your own beliefs but if your beliefs infringe on someone else's ability to just exist in this world then you need to go somewhere else and do something with it um but i think it's important at work that i am able to say i'm not that like ranty ragey crazy person which is what i am outside of work if you listen to our podcast i'm not chill like we're no <laughs> not chill at all but at work i'm very much like hey listen yeah. here's how i feel about things i understand people have a different viewpoint we can have a whole conversation about this as long as your conversation is respectful mm -hmm. and um based in science. We're a big science organization. So if you don't believe in science, you don't make it through the interview process. <laughs> that could be problematic. I, yeah. yeah. Uh, like we have some specific <clears throat> questions that are designed to find out if you, you know, just sort of believe in the core concepts of science. Um, so, I mean, I think all of that going into government you're, kind of, you're kind of 
rearing kind of what I said, which was mm-hmm. like, yeah, we have these certain beliefs, but we don't let our personal beliefs dictate right. how we operate around amongst our staff. Right. But like, something that you're, when we're there, we're there to support them. Mm-hmm. I don't care who you are. Something that you're describing here. So first off, I, I'm multidisciplinary. I am a behavior analyst. I love right. behavior analysis, but I don't limit myself to behavior analysis because it's one approach. And right. there's a lot of convergent ideas out there. And mm-hmm. we see that with behavior analysis and neuroscience and endocrinology and all those other things out there. But um, when it comes to ACT, acceptance, commitment, training therapy, and the, its foundation, relational frame therapy, uh, sorry, re- relational frame theory, my bad, um, that is, you know, it's, it's verbal operants, basically. Mm-hmm. And, and what you're describing here is you're describing hard situations. And instead of trying to be experiential avoiding, you're turning mm-hmm. towards it. Yes. Or as I said, even before I discovered ACT, the way out is through. Yeah. yeah. And the, Eric and I had a fun moment. So neither of us could really wrap our heads around ACT for most of our career, right? It was just, I don't get it. What are you talking about? And then it's almost like we both had to shift where it was, wait a second, stop thinking about ACT with ABA. Think about what you do as a human and then put it into what RFT and ACT says. And all of a sudden it was like, wait a second hold on, we already do all of this. It does could like the hexaflex. Cause I remember the first time I looked at a hexaflex, I was like, what on earth is this thing? I was like, I don't get it. It doesn't make any sense. I want ABC and I want frequency data and I want graphs. And I just could not do it. And then it was just this like evolution into like, oh, oh. Yeah, once we could start putting it in context, mm-hmm. it really kind of opened things up with, oh, okay, this is what we need to do. This is how we operationalize mm-hmm. it. Yep. Here's how we live it. Here's how we can apply it to the things mm-hmm. that we do in the company. Here's how we can apply it to things we do in our own lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's helped us, I mean... Tremendously. I us creating there's the a, podcast a really kind of put this helpful, in the head of conversations. Yes. There, there's a really helpful book that, that I've read that I, I like to try to utilize with my approach with my employees. Um, Brian, you, you may have heard of it, but a lot of what you all are describing, I feel, again, it's like you're doing these things without putting this label on it. But it's from Dr. Paul Flaxman, Dr. Frank Bond, and, and, and Frederick Livheim, I think the last name is pronounced. But it's called The Mindful and Effective Employee and Commitment Therapy Training Manual for improving the well-being and performance. Um, So so for me, that's been very helpful in my leadership role. I have several Mm -hmm. BCBAs and QBHPs and then underneath them, you know, the the techs underneath them, but of of even how I'm trying to to approach and and support them. So I I think it's really cool that even if maybe we don't realize that that's what we're implementing, it's almost like at the end of the day, if you're a decent human <laughs> and you really care about the outcomes of right. your, your clients and you care mm-hmm. about your staff, you are implementing these practices, mm-hmm. but maybe just not realizing there's a specific label that you're using. Right. And act no, goes Mm-hmm. Oh, ACT goes deeply into, and RFT, it goes deeply into mm-hmm. linguistics and language and how we use language and how we apply mm-hmm. language and what language does. Um, mm-hmm. It's, at, it's looking at the function of language. It's like, okay, so mm-hmm. we're, you're worried about meaning and I'm worried about what does it do when I say this, right? Yeah. And yeah. 
And that's, that's one of my passions is like, how do you get humans to be human instead of stop humanizing? And, and so like a lot of the posts I've been doing with my bearded behaviors page have been like, you know, let's treat each other like humans. Let's see each other from the human perspective. Let's give the other, let's afford that other person that we may disagree with, with that humanity. And, and Mm -hmm. part of it, part of it's a little unfair because I've got all this reading and all this knowledge just scrolling through my brain. And I'm like, I'm asking people to try something really hard. That's difficult Mm -hmm. to do when you're stuck in this this context, which is Mm -hmm. why like we're contextual behavioral scientists more than anything else. Right. Right. Uh, But at the same time, it's like, well, how do I get people to see this? How do I get Mm -hmm. more people to understand that perhaps when you say this thing and this other person says this thing, you're not understanding each other. Right. And it's not clicking. It's like Mm -hmm. puzzle pieces that don't fit. And, Mm -hmm. and, that's a passion area for me. And the same thing goes yeah. for how behavior analysis is applied because mm-hmm. yeah, sure. Extinction. It's a procedure. That's something we can do. Right. That definitely yeah. is a procedure, but what's the context? Is it appropriate yes. in this context? Is it mm-hmm. affording that humanity to that individual? Like, right. And, and, and is this the best approach? It's it, yeah, sure. It works. Right. But it works, it works. Doesn't it doesn't, doesn't make it so that the person's a person. Right. Yeah, just, because, just because you can doesn't, doesn't mean that you should. should. Yeah, right. I have this. Right. I, exactly. So I teach, um, I teach classes because my thing was is that I'm seeing all these people coming out of grad school programs with this very solid ability to apply differential reinforcement of intermittent blah, 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 but literally no ability to program for the whole child and the whole family. And I was like, as a mom, if you came to me and you were like, okay, you're going to put whining on extinction, I'd tell you where to shove it. I'm like, no, I'm not because I'm a mom and I'm tired. That's and not it's functional happening. communication. Yes, right. and it's functional. I was like, so I really, I really pushed to everyone. You have to put the person before all the other things. What do you as a human need? in this moment, in the next moment, in a week from now, in two weeks from now, and how do we structure the things that we know to get to that point? How do we build that up so that we can get you close to where you want to be? Um, and the answer is not extinction ever. <laughs> Stop it. Like I teach my, my undergrads, we do a whole week on extinction. And I started out with, I swear to God, if you ever implement extinction and you do not have a very, very solid reason for it, I will find you. And I will yell at you. It's so funny you're, you're talking about that, Sam. Uh, doctor, now doctor, Shane Spiker and I are, are teaching an ethics course through Arizona State University right now for some of the grad students. And our most current assignment is a risk-benefit analysis mm. of some of these procedures. And everyone's wanting to use extinction because, oh, I pulled this out and this looks pretty from the Cooper book. No. So I've spent hours this week on every individual assignment, just trying to ingrain in their brains. You want me to come and guess lecture? Yeah, exactly. The procedure is effective, but let's talk the ethics. Let's talk about the human decency behind this type of topic. It's like we've forgotten that humans are humans and that it doesn't matter how well your freaking procedure works. If you lose that core human piece of like dignity and respect and making people 
feel like they have a place in this world and a voice and whatever that voice looks like, right? Um, but I have been noticing recently that it's not just our field. Like it's all the fields yeah. that work with these baby humans. I yelled at an SLP the other day because I was like, you will not just take this kid's words away from that. No, thank you. I don't care if you don't like what they're saying. You won't <laughs> get to do that. They're speaking. Yeah. Right. And it it's like we think that baby 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 humans don't need the pieces. So yeah, it's so cold and callous. And you know, ABA has kind of fallen in this heads fallen for years, fallen in this trap of being a very efficient science. Mm -hmm. And because it's very efficient, it's easy to just, oh, uh, science says I can do this, okay, I'll go do. Mm -hmm. And so we just do this programmed approach of treating kids very systematically. They all get the same thing. We, they all get the same approach uh, and nothing's ever individualized. Mm -hmm. And then we turn to ourselves into little ABA robots. So yeah. mm -hmm. this is how, this is always how we go about doing things. Yeah. Um, and it takes away that, that human element that you're working with human beings. And so you need to treat them as well, such. And there's a dynamic and a flow and a nuance that ha goes from one human to another. And I think that happens with how we manage staff too, right? So I have, with my BCBAs quite frequently, I say, you should know your employees so intimately that you know when they're having an off day, you know what they like, you know what they hate, and you should be able to key into that when you need to, right? Because I know for all of my clinicians and most of my staff that I see, I know what's going on in your personal life that might be affecting your work performance. I know if I need to cue you to take an extra 10 minute break. I know if someone needs to take a vacation, <laughs> which is usually this one, right? And then I have to put those antecedent interventions in place so that I can help them take care of their own self-care so that they can give 100% to the kids in the company and the world right so by the way i have to tell her when to take time off too <laughs> yeah oh, I, I figured as much <laughs> so <laughs> th this is my pet peeve about radical behaviorism not aba radical behaviorism this is the core of of what uh, applied behavior analysis is <clears throat> radical behaviorism was unique and radical because it took the approach of the outward approach moving in, meaning we look at the environment, the external environment and how that influences behavior and move in. But the the thing that made radical behaviorism different from metho methodological behaviorism is it didn't stop at the skin. It keeps mm -hmm. going deeper. And that when the, 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 the first, so one of my favorite authors, I've mentioned him before, Terry Pratchett, he mentions first thoughts, second thoughts, third thoughts in one of his books, multiple of his books actually. First thoughts are, oh, environment influences behavior. Oh, I'm a part of the environment that influences behavior. And then the third thought is what I'm experiencing internally and what they're experiencing internally is also a part of the environment. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so discrete behavior, sorry, uh, internal behaviors, internal events are a part of the environment. And that's one of the reasons why mindfulness and act are so important because no, I can't observe what you're experiencing inside. I can't read your thoughts. That's a, that's right. a beautiful fantasy. And, 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 it, want and to. It, it's fantastic to, 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 what if about it, but what is, mm -hmm. what is, well, what is, right. is that I can't do those things, but what I can do is I can shape my responding to the environment and to how other right. people experience it. I mm -hmm. can, 
I can use self-management tools like ACT because that's how I classify ACT as it's a self-management tool. Mm -hmm. um, I teach these principles and these ideas and I hope that they generalize and I do everything I can to make them make it so it's more likely to generalize. And I look at the structure of the organization like you guys are looking at and I research into these things and go, okay, what can I put in place to make that happen? And then I self-check, I self-check, mm -hmm. I self-check, I self-check. And you know what? I'm human. I screw up. There are days when I go in and I'm in a grumpy mood, or there are days when it is a matter of performance for me. And I have to check mm -hmm. myself and ask myself that. And, mm -hmm. you know, I'll be honest, I've recently done that where yeah. I've recently hit a hit kind of a wall. And then I was like, why am I feeling this way? What's going on? And then I had mm -hmm. to go through and, and analyze the circumstances that were happening there, afford myself that humanity, mm -hmm. then say, all right, what is the committed action I need to move towards? Mm -hmm. Am I moving that's towards it. my values? Yes or no. And if the answer is no, what do I need to change? Right. And that's it. I, but I, and all of it sort of ropes into this like introspective piece that I feel, and I'm not sure. I, so I grew up in like five different countries and I've been all over the world and all of that. Right. So I've always had this very, um, I want to say like introspective personality because I'm so used to having to kind of chameleon myself into situations. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, on top of the fact that I also have ADHD and then on top of the fact that I'm a, um, a domestic violence survivor and have a relatively significant trauma history, I have a lot of experience of making myself safe and kind of fit into what I need to do in that moment, which means I'm very good at reading people. And it took a while to get to that point, but I'm very good at um, figuring out rates of responding and very minute decreases in rates of responding from people, which instantly cues me into if something's off, right? Mm -hmm. So I've always struggled understanding how people do not have any level of introspection to be able to say like, Oh, I'm being a jerk right now and I need to stop or, Hey, maybe I'm not meeting. I don't know. Maybe I'm not affording myself the humanity to be wrong in this moment and kind of get to that point. And it's almost like that is a skill deficit that's missing in a lot of people that we somehow have to figure out like, okay, we know what the skill deficit is now. We could probably operationalize it in a private event kind of way. How do we teach that skill to mastery level so that people can engage in the behaviors that are necessary of people to make good leaders? You can't be a good leader if you're an arrogant son of a bee as a certain person who no longer has a certain high office just show it <laughs> but it, 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 it was like the model that you and eric have have set up there is it's not just that you're you're trying to teach them or preach at them but you're truly leading by example with your morning mm -hmm. huddles of giving people the opportunity to be able to speak having that open door policy uh the example that you gave of of your technician who called you a name when you walked away and and not being have th that ego about yourself mm -hmm. of what did you call me you're fired right. of, of saying you know what let's talk about this mm -hmm. so just that open door policy Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, I think if our listeners are really wanting to, to emulate some of the success that you're having, that's a key takeaway for, for me of what something I immediately do to support my staff. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, I think so. I wanted to read this paragraph from our internal systems about leadership at AWA, um, because our training is very specifically set up so that our values are just like sort of integrated into um, just our existence. But it says so it has a quote that says the servant leader is the servant first. It begins with the natural feeling that one wants to serve and to serve first. And that's by Robert K. Greenleaf. Um, And then the next part says leadership positions at AWA require commitment to furthering the values and missions of the company, including the dedication to providing a safe and fulfilling work environment to our staff. While supervisors are not expected to adhere strictly to any one procedure or method of management, there should be a general sense of satisfaction within all teams. It is important to look at all areas of your professional life through a behavior analytic lens. Many management books and materials refer to characteristics and skills that lack an ABA standard definition, but finding a way to identify how we can best identify, use, and track these skills is vital to the success of our clients, staff, ourselves, and the organization. Um, And that's sort of like the key piece is, so like I'm a huge Brene Brown person, like that's my jam, Um, but Brene Brown, yeah, Brene Brown, that's not ABA, but I found a way to put it in our sort of being and worked in there so that we are taking that piece that she calls shame research. So mm-hmm. shame and empathy and all of that and work it in so that we are addressing all areas of like the whole person, the whole person, not just like the little tiny bit that you can see. And I, I've been eyeballing that quote by Brene Brown. I'm also a big fan. Would you mind reading that to us as well, Sam? Because sure. I think it's so cool that you put this in there. Yeah. So um, a leader is anyone who takes responsibility for finding the potential in people and processes and who has the courage to develop that potential. Um, And Brene Brown is all over our offices, Uh, like on on the front door of one of our offices. It says you are responsible for the energy you bring into this room, like real big. (laughs) So people have to like, (laughs) am I being rude right now? Kind of thing. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I think. I'm trying to like go through because I have some things that I could share with y'all that if you wanted to get out to your to the people who listen kind of like general here's how we got to where we are and here's how we maintain it um I'm more than happy to well and you also provide um business consulting don't you Yes, we do. Um, it's kind of right now we do it on a as needed basis. We've had one or two companies reach out and say, Hey, we're, um, BCBA owned, but I feel like I'm really struggling and I don't know how to do this. And we help. Um, and as with everything, cause Eric and I have a nonprofit, we do everything on like a sliding scale fee and all of the money that we raise from any of these outside things goes directly back to either <laughs> helping, uh, rescue farm animals and sanctuary, or we also help all of our families with um, copay assistance, meals, all the things, they getting uh, therapeutic equipment. So yeah. So if you do need business consultation services, um, we're more than happy to offer those and it goes towards a good cause. So it's like- That's awesome. So that's something that- up in our back pockets. <laughs> I keep saying I, I would really like to be rich, but I'm never going to be rich because I always give it all away and it's really true. I don't- so if any of our listeners, if you're interested in that, uh, we have recently released a Patreon model. So we could also look at adding that if anyone's wanting to set up something mm-hmm. with Sam and Eric to help them design, um, even if you're looking at the, the peer-to-peer reinforcement system that they have. And 
we're actually with mindful behavior, we're trying to bring on presenters each month to be able to offer our community um, some free CEs and then later post on the website, uh, giving them access to, to some of this material. I can talk to you about that a little bit offline, but I, I think that this could be a, a phenomenal presentation if that's something you two are, are up to doing. I'm all for it. I feel like I'm going through all of our internal systems and I'm like, I have so many things I want to share. Like we have a diversity and inclusion committee that's like, we're doing all kinds of cool stuff in the um, like in the background, and I mean, yeah, for sure. We have like a kind of a running list of different presentations that we want yeah. to work on and things that we want to do, and it's just yeah, I guess to the point where it's just ne a never-ending list. Yeah, if but I I think I need to just stop we see, sleeping. We see the accountability of someone making us do it. No, I just need to stop sleeping. If I just didn't sleep, that's like a solid five hours a night Same. of extra Same. work. I yes, could do. no sleep. Well, I'm absolutely, uh, when we take this offline, I'll reach out and I would love to set that up because I I feel like it's so unfair to the listeners that Brian and I have the the honor to be actually able to look at this visually of while that Eric and Sam are speaking to us about their systems, we're actually getting to see what this looks like. Um, and, and I would like to be able, if they're willing, to share that with some of you all so you can see how they have set this up. And I have I'm been debating putting a video of, of a podcast, just so you guys know. I, I didn't ask permission, so it, we won't do it unless, right. if you don't want to. But like being able to glance at some of these things is also very useful. Yeah. Do you, uh, Jenna Lee, so under self-care, it says, so I should go get margaritas and binge watch, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many things in here that, like, I think should be shared. So, yeah, yeah. I yeah, have well, all the things. And this all relates back to the, the mission of act natural, mindful behavior, and all this stuff, because trauma-informed is, is a good mission, right? Mm -hmm. We want to be, we want to make sure that we're not causing trauma and we're, uh, right. we're being conscientious of trauma. But trauma-informed is more than that. Trauma-informed mm -hmm. goes to the next level. Trauma-informed is is asking the question and ACT is asking the question of um, how can we stop suffering from mm -hmm. happening? Because suffering is optional. And to be clear, this is my this is my words, um, but this is my summary of ACT. ACT is, is founded on the basic concept that pain is inevitable. Pain is a part of life. You have to have pain to grow, but mm -hmm. suffering is optional. Mm -hmm. And we want to be able to help people to grow. And going back to my multidisciplinary approach to things, there's a beautiful theory out there uh, from another branch of psychology. I can't remember exactly which one, but the, the theory is called the uh, differential susceptibility hypothesis. And in the differential susceptibility hypothesis, it makes the argument, and I'm happy to, to message that to you, Sam, so you don't have to remember it. Um, oh, I won't. I'll never forget it now that you've said it. <laughs> awesome. Um, but the, 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 the idea of differential susceptibility hypothesis is we all, are, are, we all have a hard limit on the amount of stress that we can handle. And once you hit that threshold of that stress, then disorders start appearing right? But the differential side, because behavior analysis and differential, right? Two di going different directions. Um, the differential side of it is that there's also circumstances where with, if you hit the right things that are happening, you 
grow exponentially and it's explosive and it's beautiful and people become autonomous and powerful in their own right. And um, I'm giving it my own words and I don't even, I, I've, I've just recently discovered a theory, so I'm still diving into it. I, and I hope this is included in it, but if it's not, it needs to be. I believe that based off of the research that I've done, based off of the things that I've experienced and the people I've worked with, that when you hit that differential of that explosive growth that your hard limit on stress that you can handle actually increases your capacity to handle stress goes up and you and your growth is not just growth in positive but it's also in how you can handle the negative Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and, and that's what i want for the world Mm -hmm. I, i want everybody to be able to hit this because like imagine a world and i'm doing this because i'm selfish I'm a very selfish person and I'm happy to say it. I want a world where everybody thrives, where everyone is powerful. And maybe Mm -hmm. that's a pipe dream and maybe that's just a value and not an achievable thing, but I'm going to fight for it. I'm going to fight for it every chance I get in every way I can, because if everybody is powerful and everybody has the things that they need to succeed, then my world is better Mm -hmm. for me and those people that I love. And yep. my, my group of people that I love can expand. And does that mean that, that I'm going to get along with everybody? No, I understand mm-hmm. that not everybody's going to get along, but I can at least accept that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm a, I feel the same way. Like I very much want, I think for, for my own selfishness for, for me and like humanity, I want everyone to engage with all the things that they can to learn and to grow and to like be happy. And it's like, just do the things we can help you do the things, be happy, touch all the things and then like spread the happiness. Yeah. And and I was kind of chuckling when you're talking about being selfish, because I've always kind of seen the way my approach as a selfish approach. Yeah. And that if I can put all this work in on the front end, then I'm saving myself a whole lot of grief and aggravation on the back end. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's, but I've always kind of saw that as a selfishness in a, in a way. Um, it's like you're, you're being, um, I, I can't even think of the term, but um, it's you're, you're sacrificing of yourself so that you don't have to sacrifice yourself later. Right. Yeah. Um, it's just, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Is, I, I got to chuckle when you're, when you're talking about selfishness. I always say that I'm selfish. <laughs> it's funny how like similar some of us all are. Cause I'm always like, Oh no, it's cause I'm selfish. I'm like, if you do your job well, my job's easier. So do your job well. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, I'm just tired. That's all. I just don't want to have to do the thing. I don't but we want to ourselves getting there. Well, yeah, but I don't want to have to mitigate skill deficits <laughs> right. or performance yeah, it's, deficits. It's emotionally much harder to do that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah. Funny. I'm just sharing with them now uh, our internal BCBA competencies. One of my gripes is that uh, BCBAs will get their certification and then just be free on the world to do the things. And it's like, oh, we've reached the Mecca. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You're just welcome. Now you have all the other things to learn. I, so, I want this so that I can do better. So, like, Oh, yeah, you can. You know what? Eric, is our he's in charge of it. He will totally just walk you through what we do. Um, but yeah, this is all stuff that people internally clinician wise have to do before I even think about giving them free reign on clients. Um, and it goes all the way through diversity and inclusion competencies so that you don't get to be a jerk all over the world <laughs> because of your own internal biases. There's, um, a, there's a big self-reflection piece within yeah. that. Like, 
okay, you've, you've reached this leadership position. Like, do you even realize what your blind spots are? Right. Do you realize that you have biases that are going to impact your leadership mm-hmm. decisions, even affecting you? Like, if, we're, if you're saying you're a servant leader, what are these, like, vulnerable decision points mm-hmm. that you have to address that might keep you from being a good servant leader. It's funny how like connected everything is. Cause I always say that I have a crap ton of like deficits, like a lot, a lot of deficits in this brain. Crap ton equals many, many. (laughs) So I, um, I program for my own deficits by finding other humans that have strengths that are my deficits and my strengths are their deficits. Right. And this is where Eric comes in. Eric and I are opposite humans. He's good at what I'm bad at and I'm bad at what he's good at, but we both have that core piece of feedback and going towards the same goal. So like, I know that I said, like, I'm too rigid. I'm a very rigid person. I like, I like a- straight lines, efficiency, A, B, C, D, E, and Eric freaking hates it. So quite frequently, he'll be like, I don't want to follow this policy. And I'm like, I don't care if you don't want to follow the policy. The policy is in there. She used to follow it. And just that awareness piece of like, here's my deficit. That's not something I'm going to be able to change. Or here's my implicit bias that I am actively working towards but need to mitigate. Here's how I'm going to do it. Here's a human. Human. <laughs> Help yeah. me human. Help me human. So, yeah. Yeah, and I think that balance of when can you make something a policy and procedure? When should you just act it? Just do it. It's yeah. always um, a policy. And that's kind of like the give and take that we always give each other. <laughs> <laughs> See, I, when, I hear pi- when I hear policy, I hear Captain Bar- Barbosa going, that's more guidelines than rules. So, you know. <laughs> that's, and that's, so that's it, right? Like, it's written. So there are things that are rules. Like, there are things about client care, dignity, respect that are rules. But everything else, if you read through, like, our training stuff, it's like, this is a guideline. I'm going to tell you how, like, I would do it as a clinician. But I am not the mecca of clinicians. I'm probably where, and I always joke, I'm like, I'm a crappy clinician. Like, I don't, I'm like, I don't know, just do the thing. But so I'm going to say, here's how I would do it. Here's how the field does it. But this is a guideline. You want to do your other thing? You want to run your, I don't know, skill acquisition programs this way? Does it work? Is it ABA? Do your thing. Off you go. You'll be able to back it up. Yeah, you have to be able to back. If I come to you as the owner of the company and say, so what you doing? You have to be able to be like, oh, research A, B, C, D, E, F, and G. And then I took this and I did that and I did this and here's the plan, right? I think a lot of people fall into the trap. Well, they'll be like, well, because I wanted to. And I'm like, that doesn't work. This is science. Please. So yeah, I, I think that you would greatly appreciate and love the the work of uh, Dr. Jonathan Haidt because uh, mm-hmm. he ooh, he talks about these things. He uh, again, it's H A I T E for uh, listeners. H A I D T. Oh, sorry. So it's it's kind of like Hyatt. You could pronounce it Hyatt or Hate. Um, Got it. His he, his TED talk that he did. He he was part of the, one of the first TED talks. Um, he proposes. Uh, moral foundation theory in that. And that's one of his big mm-hmm. things that he does work on. Um, and then after that Ted talk, he, he published a book called the righteous mind um, where he not only covers the five that he talks about in the Ted talk, but he uh, figured out a, a sixth one and it's fantastic. And that one is beautiful. And that's uh, for understanding um, other people's moral language and how 
their moral language determines what they're saying and how other people who have the similar moral language respond to each other, which is one of the main reasons why we have so much fighting, because um, a progressive and a conservative might be saying exactly the same damn thing, folks. Right. Hey. But right. they're saying it with different words, mm-hmm. and 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 it's really funny because I've, I've I've I practice this all the time, and I've been able to get people who would normally fight each other, and it has to be in person, it has to be in person. But I've gotten mm-hmm. them to agree with each other and be like, "Oh, that's what you mean. Okay, I get it now." But oh, I get it. <laughs> yeah, and, and but Dr. Hate's other work, um, so his other book that I'm I'm still working on, but it's it's so fun and funny too because he. Mm-hmm misidentifies behavior analysis uh, a little bit. Um, I, I wrote a critique and Uh-oh. once I finish the book, I'm going to, I'm going to publish the critique, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, but aside from that minor little issue of, of, of uh, him thinking that behavior analysis is only about stimulus control, external mm-hmm. stimulus control specifically. Um, mm-hmm. Like a lot of the, the stuff that he he's done research on and has published is showing that it's, it's again, convergent ideas. The, um, stuff that behavior analysis is discovering is consistent with the stuff that he's discovering. And just because their language is not the same as our language doesn't mean that he's wrong. In fact, exactly the opposite. It's like, hey, mm-hmm. guess what? It's been replicated just differently. Differently, right. I have this uh, ongoing thing that I always say, I don't think you should be allowed to be a BCBA until you've had another job for like four years because that part of having to like operate within the the regular people's world is what makes us good. I was a crisis counselor for years. Right. And he was in education, but that um, like collaborative informed by by other areas Mm -hmm. piece is what makes us effective clinicians. If you do high school, undergrad master's certification freedom you're like you're you're still a baby. You don't know what you're doing. Stop it. You should have to be like, I've got tons of experience. I have, I have worked so many jobs and done so many things mm-hmm. and you know what? I'm still a baby. And That's yes, I know I've got a baby face, you know, I'm 36 <laughs> and, and if I didn't have this lovely beard, then I would probably look like, you know, I, I get carded all the time. It's hilarious. Um, and, and the day that I start looking old is the day I'm going to start feeling a lot happier about myself. Cause I can't wait to be that old grumpy no. on the porch who's like, get off my lawn and come up here and play checkers with me, you know, <laughs> like, but, but at the same time, it's like, it's okay to say that I don't know everything. I hate the term expert. Because experts, oh, yeah. oh, same. Yeah, you know everything. I am a specialist, and I will be a specialist until the day I die. And then when I die, I'll be a specialist in decomposition. Just saying. That's true. That's true. <laughs> you will. Yeah. The amount of times I say I don't know on a daily basis is oh, yeah. mind blowing. Oh, I'm like, yeah. oh, I have no idea, but I'll find out. And I'll let you know. But having that humility and that mm-hmm. curiosity mm-hmm. is is core. And yeah. If, if we if we forget that if we forget our humanity then what's the point like right and well apparently the point is money but all of us are doing it wrong apparently but, <laughs> here's the thing is if you want to be prosperous and successful the people who are the most prosperous and successful are the people who they may have a value of being pr- prosperous and successful, but the, but do they truly prosper? Mm-hmm. Like the number of oh, times that I've met somebody who is, who is rich, <laughs> who's got tons of money. And I'm like, Ooh, that's probably a disorder right there. Oh, that's definitely, Oh my goodness. Yeah. Like your yeah. life is miserable. 
And, and I just, mm-hmm. that's just from looking from the outside. And a lot of times I see these things and I'm going like, how can we heal the world? How can we make the world so that instead of the suffering being the default, it's optional? Mm-hmm. Because if we can make that's beautiful. it optional. We have a shirt. That, yeah, that was very, very nicely said. I want like a quote on my wall, please. Yeah, what did I say? Like <laughs> yeah. Are you recording this? You're yeah, gonna have I'll, to I'll go back and look and it over. It I think what Perfect. I said was something along the lines of like, you know, pr- suffering is is optional. Pain, uh, like we need to make a world where suffering is optional. Mm-hmm. That's, That's it very right true. there. That was beautiful. very, very Eastern philosophy. I right know. Yeah. For a bunch of scientists, we're getting very zen y. Which falls in line with what we're trying to do with mindful behavior. Hey, there you go. Bring things in yeah, this. Oh, you're like the bearded Buddhist or something. Ooh. Know, like, <laughs> oh, my goodness. It's going to be a shirt. It's going to be a shirt now. Yes, I would, we would like the first ones, please. We will wear them. It'll be Teal. beautiful. Yeah, that we'll awesome. put them on the, the mindful behavior website, Brian. And. and <laughs> <laughs> I but, need like a Brian sitting in a yoga pose underneath of it though. Like that's that's what I'm requesting. <laughs> we'll do I it. got the Buddha belly, so we could do it. <laughs> there you go. Perfect. Um but but that's the thing is like Eastern philosophy, we forget that Eastern philosophers were scientists. Yep. Like the first printing press, gunpowder, so many advances in what then was called alchemy and is now called chemistry. Like mm-hmm. th- they were scientists just because they have a particular philosophy that tends to be associated with the religion doesn't mean it's not scientific. And uh, yogic practices are scientific. Um, yes, there, there are some explanatory fictions and circular logics that have come into it, but that doesn't change that the science is present. And, and like I said, multidisciplinary here, one of my favorite um, breathing people is a gentleman by the name of um, Vinhoff. Uh, sorry, Vinhoff. I think I'm saying it right. I, I say his name all the time, but he is a, a gentleman out of Scandinavia who has demonstrated that breath exercises and breath work can actually alter your body's chemistry to the point that he's demonstrated the, that the myth of the Buddhist monk who's sitting in um, the middle of snow when the snow is melting around him is real. It legitimately happens. You can alter your body's temperature to the point that you can do that. And one of my favorite examples of this is he went swimming in the subarctic without a wetsuit or a dry suit. And oh. And uh, interestingly, so he was he was in the water and he was swimming under the ice. And he he's a little bit of what he's one of those little guys who's who's a little bit too enthusiastic and he doesn't quite think about it. And he opened his eyes underwater and was is swimming underneath the ice. And his eyes freeze and he loses his vision. And they sent people into him uh, under the water in dry suits to save him and get him out because he was going to run out of air. And the people who went in to save him got hypothermia, but he didn't. All of that sounds very uncomfortable and painful. Like, whoa. Yeah, well, you know, he's... Let's try it out. No, kind of thank a- <laughs> you. I hate being cold. Listen, I'm buying myself a house in Florida soon so that I can just not be cold. I can opt out of cold. So I don't think... Not, not in the Arctic. Club. We're, we're talking great uh, killer well club here, you know. No, you thank go. you. <laughs> I'm going to opt out. I'll just watch from like a... Like, you're going to have to get me a webcam and just take it with you. And I'll watch from under my blankets. To be fair, I'm not interested in doing that either. But what I am interested in is science that, yes. that, the that process behind it i mean that's a lot of behavior shaping that going on there to 
train your body to do that. Yeah. That would be interesting. Yeah. Well, hey, we might have to talk about that on another podcast. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating because we're, doggy being active over here. <laughs> we're always trying to explore and understand. So why would we dismiss something without exploring it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The concept of grounding that, that, that concept back in the, the uh, late two thousands, early two thousands was, was laughed out as being something that, that has no science behind it. And yet there's been some research coming out in the last um, late two thousands and early 2000 teens uh, showing that when you are in contact with the earth and you're not insulated from it, that you get negative ions that help uh, neutralize free radicals in your body. Can I make, I want to make a point real quick because I feel like this is where people get confused, right? So when we're talking ABA in a clinical autism perspective, right? Everything we do has to be evidence-based, science-based, yes. meets very rigorous standards. That does not mean outside of that autism treatment part that we're not considering all these other pieces, right? Mm -hmm. If you come to me and you say, I want to use essential oils as scent therapy because it'll cure this kid's autism, I'm going to tell you absolutely not, right? because that's mm -hmm. a baby human who right now needs you to do evidence-based interventions for their best outcomes. And also Outside, you don't need to cure them. You just need to help you, them. Exactly. Space. Right. Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. These are all things that have like come to me and I'm like, no, no, but outside of that, expanding your mind and considering all these other possibilities and exploring them is a requirement of science. So like, in my clinical practice, when I'm working with clients, I'm like, this is evidence-based. We're going to do this. We're going to implement it. It's technological. I can, you know, show the relationship between the two. Outside of that, I'm like, oh, hey, let's talk about, I don't know, what were we talking about the other day? It was something like bougie bougie. And I was like, huh, that sounds interesting. I want to look into that. And like exploring those pieces and then seeing if you, if it reaches the criteria to be scientifically accurate and this is all science right like yeah. oh look we went down this path and it was wrong okay stop that path it doesn't work what about this avenue or and, if it's something bougie bougie and you can still approach it from with a behavior analytic lens right then do that from a scientific perspective yes. so then do that open then. to it yeah. yes so that i think that's interesting because like i will say at work all the time like no you may not because that's not evidence-based and then outside of work i'm like oh hey i'm gonna Huff, ground cinnamon, <laughs> or whatever it is. Light up the ouch. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, I if mean, you've never oh, have it, while using work? cinnamon and baking, that hurts, just so you know. Yeah. Don't that's do true. it. true. I should not snort cinnamon. <laughs> but like, anecdotally, it's like, anecdotally, this makes me feel better. I like to feel better because this is where I, my values are and this is what I want to go to. So I'm going to use it and then I'm going to research the hell out of it because I'm a little obsessive. Well, okay. So here's, here's some of my, a couple good examples of this. Um, first, uh, essential oils, because you just mentioned that. Um, I love essential oils for mindfulness because yes. the scent and the practice of using them brings you in the present moment. So mm -hmm. Agreed. very beautiful, very useful. And you know what? It smells good. Usually, yeah, it's it depends, good. It depends on the like oil, it. but like it, it, it for me, it brings a lot of positive memories because my mother has been into natural healing. Um, I infuriate her whenever I question anything that she says, uh, but at the same time, she loves me and I love her, and so it's it's a beautiful paradigm there. But it, I smell essential oils; it brings me back to home. Um, so that's part of it. But along those same lines, uh, oh rats! What was the other one? There was the other one. Oh yes, 
the full moon. And, uh, and and be and people saying stuff about when the full when the moon is full, then we get more crazies out, right? That sort of thing. Mm-hmm. You sure to, you've heard it? I've heard it. Well, I was like, okay, what research is there about the full moon? And I've been down that hole too. It, okay, so let's see if you discover what I discovered. If you if you know more, I'd love to hear it because I don't. What, what I discovered was there's actually a study that's shown that whether someone is aware of the moon being full or not. Um, they on average uh the average individual gets about an hour and a half less of sleep per night i don't think i saw that one it's 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 fascinating it was a very small study and i don't know if it's been replicated or not but i'm like huh so maybe that's an establishing operation for irritability right Mm. if you slept less right you're 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 less likely to make rational choices air quotes yep. there and rational when you're feeling grumpy and when we when you're missing out on sleep and mm-hmm. so whenever i have a parent say something like that i'll, I'll like okay well have you thought about them going to bed a little earlier right. and then i tell them about right. it and and, and say I, I don't know if this is really a thing or not but i hypothesize that this might be a thing so let's see if maybe sleep disruption is an issue because mm-hmm. there might be something inside of us internally that is mm-hmm. less likely to sleep when it's lighter outside due to the moon. And right. there's an argument for that too, which is mm-hmm. when it's lighter outside, you're more likely to be spotted by a predator. Therefore, you want to be a little bit more alert. Well, right. And biologically, we are always fight or flight. Uh-huh. So like, yeah, that would all kind of weave into the same thing. Now, it might Anyways, be, we went really off topic. Justifying. For, <laughs> someone who has to go, Brian. Yeah. We're like delving deep into all kinds of stuff. <laughs> I feel like we've come up with like six new topics for other oh. podcasts that we need to do oh, this. We can come back. back yeah, man. We'll talk about all the things. Yeah, yeah. we. this is what our <laughs> weekly podcast is. It's like Eric and I go on a tangent and then you end up in the rabbit hole with us. That's every week. Oh, that <laughs> like, sounds what like is fun. The, it's... <laughs> I swear a lot. Um, I uh, we talk about random things. That's, I get distracted. Eric gets distracted by an animal every week, and he'll be like, "Oh, a hummingbird!" And I'm like, "Oh, see, look, he needs to be medicated." Um, yeah, it's fun. It's fun. Well, it sounds like this is a good place to kind of stop. Um, yeah. So just a just a final wrap up, folks. Uh, keep in mind that um, Act Natural is an open source education podcast, which means you can uh, use all or part of the podcast towards um, spreading these important ideas. Um, We want them to be out there. The only requirement is you must cite your sources. Um, If you do not cite your sources, then, uh, and I find out about it, I'll reach out to you and say, fix that, please. Um, But otherwise, you know, as long as it's it's fixed, that's not an issue. Folks, if you want to hear more from Sam and Eric, uh, you can listen to them on the Hops and Hoops podcast, which is found anywhere you can find podcasts. I definitely recommend it. It's fun. Uh, beware that there is some cursing. That's okay, though. Like, some. <laughs> we bit. We bit. We bit. Uh, <laughs> like like with other podcasts of of its sort, it's uh, go in fully aware that that it's. <laughs> There's going to be that component. And if that's an issue for you, then obviously don't listen. But um, we would love for you to join mm-hmm. us uh, in the conversation at Mindful Behavior on the Facebook group. Um, and uh, 
definitely feel free to reach out to us or to Eric and Sam um, to learn more because we want to continue this. This is our value and our mission. Uh, do you guys want to share any final thoughts before we go? Um, I think that's, no, you kind of got all of it. We have a Facebook page. It's Hops and Hooves, a humanity podcast, I think it's under. <laughs> um, we kind of try to post all of the things on there. Eric and I are working on some sort of CEU content on how do we um, how do we spread the like servant leadership in an ABA mm -hmm. world to um, to kind of better our field as a whole. So keep a lookout mm -hmm. for that. Um, we're more than happy to chat and share all, all of our resources that we have. Um, again, with the caveat that you cite your sources and don't butcher them, please and thank you. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I I, think I I appreciate the opportunity to kind of, for you to sh use your platform with us yeah. to, for us to kind of start getting this message out. Um, you know, we talk a lot about these things on our podcast, um, but we haven't really quite yet reached out elsewhere. Yeah. Um, and it's a kind of a plan that kind of Sam and I have been talking through without any formality, mm -hmm. but it's, it's so important to have these kinds of kinds of these kinds of conversations within your company uh, because it's something that's not talked about in ABA programs mm -hmm. uh, when people are coming up. They don't get the experience of how to actually lead outside of just the, their little ABA bubble. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, to me, it's really important to, to really grow people and to really have a mm -hmm. philosophy of being invested in the company, being invested in the people, because ultimately when you do those things, clients get the best outcome. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so yeah, and we are starting an OBM internship program so that we can do just that. Oh, yeah. So, yes. That's awesome. <laughs> oh, very cool. That's awesome. Yeah. We, and we, uh, we do offer some consultants uh, if you're interested in consulting or if you are already certified and you want further mentorship. We are working on that through Mindful Behavior. Maybe I can mm -hmm. convince Sam and Eric to, to be potential mentors or consultants. Generally. I don't know if you've noticed, but we don't take a whole lot of convincing to take on extra responsibilities. Like it sort of just comes <laughs> they with do the all the things. So I can absolutely, if, if that's something that they are interested in doing, adding their name to the list. Um, but I think that kind of what we were talking about a little bit earlier of once you get those letters behind your name, that doesn't mean that the learning stops. That's really when Amen. it does begin. And if you Pretty feel like you need more support in these areas, you want further support and how to be able to support your clinicians, your technicians. Um, Sam and Eric have, have done a lot of beautiful work um, and are a great model for this. So absolutely, let's let's all work together to make the field a better place. Yes. Well, I think that's a good stop and point. Uh, folks, thank you so much for joining us and uh, act natural. <laughs>